Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than... The generals do. No, Donald, you don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. Today... Does the story of a single syringe tell us everything we need to know about the media's crazy mixed-up role in this campaign? It kind of does. Welcome back to Hannity. So questions continue to swirl about Hillary Clinton's health and if she is fit to serve as president of the United States. We asked the Times media columnist Jim Rutenberg to explain. Well, the syringe and more technically a diazepam pen used for recurrent seizures started appearing on conservative blogs And it started kicking around. They had pictures of a Secret Service agent, or was it, carrying this, what had to have been, diazepam pen. And it got picked up by the Drudge Report. And ultimately, Sean Hannity of Fox News picks it up. Trump sort of hints at it, and surrogates like Rudolph Giuliani pick it up as well, that she's obviously got severe health problems. How many days or hours would you say it took that syringe to travel from the fringe to kind of literally the primetime heights of cable news? It seems to me it took a day or two. So it was very fast. It was way faster than this used to happen. And and actually, let me amend one thing. This didn't used to happen, where something that was this unsubstantiated and wild did not get onto primetime on a cable news network. So you're sitting there watching Hannity or you find out about it, and you do what? I mean, how do you go about trying to figure out what this thing is or what it isn't? It was a simple call to the Secret Service, and the the spokesperson I talked to said no one had called her, and she was pretty certain no one had called, period. She checked in with the head of the detail and confirmed that it was a flashlight, and I reported that. That's how long it took you to debunk this. Yeah, but I've already seen a little bit on Twitter, and I bet there's even more out there, a attitude of why would you believe the Secret Service, right? They're probably lying, And, and worse, why would you believe the liberal mainstream media liberal there accusation, and why would you believe the New York Times? That is where we get into this kind of new world we're in where it's been heading this way for a long time, but we're finally here, where truth is absolutely relative. There's no sort of platonic form of truth where you can both sides can agree that here's a set of facts, and let's debate from there. Well, Jim, you've beautifully kicked off our episode for us, so thank you for doing that. Thanks for having me. So that's what we're talking about today. What's happened to the media's role as an arbiter of the truth? And who's to blame? We're going to spend this entire episode talking that through with two people who occupy very different places in the media world. Sarah Ellison is a reporter for Vanity Fair. She's put forward a vision of where this all might lead. A couple of months ago, it sounded like some kind of dystopian novel. 
Now it's looking eerily prescient. Charlie Sykes is also with us. He's an influential conservative talk radio show host in Wisconsin, and he's done something unusual in the last couple of days. He's issued a kind of mea culpa about his own role in all of this. We'll be right back. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate. Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Charlie, Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. When we talk about the media in this campaign, everyone seems obsessed with the question of objectivity. Has it been lost? But I'm more fascinated by the question of whether something even more elemental and important has been lost. And that's our grasp on the truth in this campaign. And when we talk about that, we have to talk about something that Charlie Sykes said in the last few days. It was instantly recognized, Charlie, what you said as pretty much the great unspoken truth of this campaign in 2016. And what you said was that the bipartisan bludgeoning of the news media over the last decade or two has has basically left us with no trusted sources in the media. And I want to just read a little bit of what you said. You said, quote, We've basically eliminated any of the referees, the gatekeepers. There's nobody. Let's say that Donald Trump basically makes whatever claim he wants to make, and everybody knows it's a falsehood. The big question of my audience is, is it possible for me to say that? Why would it ever be impossible for you to say something is false? How did that happen? Well, that, that's a great question, how we became kind of a post-truth culture. And I think, you know, part of it is this tribalization of, of the media, where we, we've kind of gone off into our own corners. And, you know, as, 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 as I confess, as a conservative talk show host, one of our themes has always been to, to bash the mainstream media, to point out the bias. And by the way, you know, a lot of that criticism, I believe, is, is justifiable. But this is the moment you wake up and you go, OK, have we done such an effective job that when I say, for example, what Donald Trump said here is demonstrably false, and here is the fact check from the New York Times or the Washington Post. We, we now have an audience that is conditioned to say, well, you know, that's the mainstream media, that is the liberal media. I, I'm not going to take that seriously. And you begin to realize you, you, you basically cut down all of these guideposts to be able to say, look, this is what is reliable, this is what is not reliable. So, you know, it, it is the perfect storm that you have a candidate, candidates, 
who are willing to say the most outrageous falsehoods. You have an alternative reality media, particularly on the right, I, I assume on the left as well, that is willing to provide them with rationalization and air cover. And then you have an audience that has been conditioned not to believe anyone outside of their own ideological bubble, their own tribal corner. Well, I was just going to say, listening to what Charlie was saying, is that even with polls, people don't believe what the polls are saying. So there was that astonishing moment where someone on the Trump you campaign was being interviewed, and the interviewer but on CNN said, you're down in the polls. And he said, well, who says? Who says? Polls. Which ones? Most of them. All of them? Says who? Polls. I just told you. I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? Even if you would say it was, you know, a, a, a Washington Post poll or something, it would be the same sort of response. So it's not even the editorial boards of these newspapers. It's, in fact, the underlying polling operations. No, I, that, was, that was actually one of my favorite moments. But see, everyone gets their own reality now. So I assume this epiphany came to you in a moment of frustration in your show where you had tried to correct somebody and found it impossible. Is, is, are there moments like that? What do those moments look like? Is there a recent example of one? Well, it, it's not just on my show. I, I engage the audience uh, in, in email exchanges as well. And you know, at, at first I was naive enough to believe that when someone would email me some, some claim that I knew was not true, I, I, would, I would write back to them and say, okay, well, here, here's the fact. Here is, it has been debunked. And what began to become apparent was that nothing I could send was going to break through because they would find another source or another site that would have the same fake information. Now, I mean, for years, this has kind of been building, that there have been increasingly sketchy, unreliable propaganda websites. But what's happened has been this alternative reality has been weaponized by Breitbart or Drudge, and then, of course, you begin to hear some of these wild conspiracy theories coming out of Donald Trump's mouth himself. And then, of course, you get the beatback and the blowback from people who believe that if you are not parroting these lines, if you are not saying, you know, what I saw in an all-caps email from LNBWest.com or from Breitbart.com, then you must be some sort of a globalist, rhino, cuck conservative sellout. And that was like, wow, okay, we are in a whole new, brave new world of information. So wait, so Charlie, you've sounded the alarm on this idea that we've created a monster incapable of recognizing truth. But Sarah, if he's done that, you've given us a vision of what that monster looks like. And I want to take listeners back to June when you wrote about something that seemed out there. I mean, I read it and thought, oh, she's out on a limb a little bit. And this was this idea that what Donald Trump was actually building was a media empire. Fast forward to now, and he's actually recruited and brought on as advisors the kind of people who would allow him to create that empire. Steve Bannon from Breitbart News, Roger Ailes, the founder and the chief of Fox News. And now we've learned from the Times, from Jim Rutenberg, that Sean Hannity is even advising of Fox News, Donald Trump. What are we looking at here? Well, I mean, I think that the key point in my piece back in June was that Donald Trump looked at the audiences who were showing up to his events and felt that I've identified something that none of these other places have. Not even Fox News has identified this. And everybody's making money off me. The ratings at all of these different news channels and news outlets are booming because of me. Why can't I monetize that? And every election 
we see a new media star come out of it, right? So it's like people are legitimized in different elections, like Sarah Palin, like Mike Huckabee, like John Kasich, for crying out loud. I mean, these are all people who have been in this sort of revolving door universe of, if I don't win, I can go and work for Fox. What Trump has done is a step beyond that. He's sort of grasping the modern media moment and saying, I can launch my own platform. Charlie, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, let's pretend there's a TNN in our future, a Trump News Network. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that? And how much is it completely built on a concept of distrust that he has further planted so deeply in the American consciousness? Well, it, it, it's fascinating, and it's completely plausible at this point. And I could certainly imagine it as the logical extension of, of what we're seeing now with, with the news media. But, but I, for a moment of heresy here, you know, understand how long this distrust has been building. And, you know, as a conservative talk show host, you know, I, I have been pointing out the examples of media bias. I'm hoping that folks in the media will recognize what a fragile commodity credibility is. And that, that when there were voices out there saying, you know, try to be somewhat more balanced, that it led up to this day of, of reckoning. We used to do the game saying, well, you know, reverse this. This was a conservative politician, how the media would handle it. And, and there are obviously agendas and there are narratives. But there's a big difference between saying here is a critique of bias versus the complete delegitimizing of the media voices. So the Trump network would be almost the, the logical reduction to absurdity of this trend which has been going on and accelerating. Charlie, how much of this, when you, when you talk about your regrets, do you hold yourself responsible for? Oh, I, I, I think we all have to look ourselves in the mirror. I mean, absolutely. You know, when I, when I hear the people who are rejecting, you know, the, the fact-checking coming back at me, I'm thinking, okay, you know, are, are, they, are they echoing back things that I have said over the years? Beating up on the mainstream media is, is in many ways, just a very, very easy target for us. And I, and I, and I think that's where this, this reckoning has to come, that people in the conservative media, and I'm certainly willing to look myself in the mirror and say, how did I contribute to this? Did I do this? Did I not understand what people were hearing when I said these things? Did I ignore things that were out there that we, that we didn't see before? This is going to have to be a period of very, very serious, and, and, it, and it's going to be painful introspection for a lot of us. Charlie, I think that you're in a perfect position to talk about conservative media, but we only have to look at CNN and the employment of Corey Lewandowski and the fact that he's still being paid by the Trump campaign and he's talking to CNN's audience about the Trump campaign and giving insights into that world. The culpability goes way beyond right-wing media. I was sort of shocked at not just his appointment, but the reaction to his appointment, which was that here's CNN, which if it has anything left, it's the fact that it is the middle-of-the-road, honest broker in a political campaign. And to hear people saying, well, it makes perfect sense. He's got some insight into the Trump campaign. I mean, why wouldn't they want someone who was on the inside who could talk about this? I mean, it gets into sort of the business realities of these media organizations, which is that they're all under a tremendous amount of pressure, a tremendous amount of sort of existential pressure in, in the midst of the media revolution to figure out where they're going to fit. And I think there are a lot of compromises being made on that front. And Trump is ultimately an entertainer who gets people to watch or listen. I, I was silent there for a moment because the whole the fact that Corey Lewandowski is actually a paid contributor to a cable news network is breathtaking. It, it, it's hard to know when to be shocked anymore. The fact that you had all of these networks, you know, including networks like MSNBC, broadcasting Donald Trump rallies, absolutely unedited, just 
pure feed. You know, that marked one of the decisive moments of, of the campaign where you had these news outlets who basically just turned over their airtime because they regarded it as necessary as a business competitive move. And this is, again, one of those moments where you're going to have to go back and you go, all right, are we going to keep doing that? Are we going to keep abdicating any sort of journalistic responsibility? Or, you know, do we just go with, hey, you know what, when we put on one of those Trump rallies, that's what moves the needle. I think what's interesting is that as a journalist who's sort of steeped in traditional standards of objectivity, I think a lot of my colleagues who cover politics were saying, well, here is Donald Trump and he's saying something outrageous and we're going to show what that is and everyone will see that for what it is. No one saw that for what it was. I mean, some people maybe did, but in fact, what that ended up doing was giving voice to a lot of people who were feeling pretty good about Donald Trump at that point, and they were sort of finding that message very compelling. And I think that gets back to your original point, Charlie, is that people were validated by a lot of his messaging. And true or not, or offensive or not to certain parts of the population, that really ended up carrying him to where we are now. One of the things that's changed in the media landscape is he will say something deeply offensive. And because so many of his supporters were in, again, what I describe as the alternative reality bubble, you know, they'll hear it explained and rationalized by Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. You know, they'll see it spun by various websites. They'll get emails, you know, talking about how the mainstream media is, is unfairly reporting. So Donald Trump actually has this, this, this informational universe out there that sometimes is invisible, I think, to a lot of folks to realize how much how much of the defense, how much, uh, you know, his most outrageous comments are often defended, rationalized, and, and explained. In reality, the media has a pretty hostile relationship with Hillary Clinton. And in any other race, that would have maybe been one of the grand narratives of the election. And maybe it's only because Donald Trump has an even more toxic relationship with the media that we don't think about that. Absolutely. There's no question about it. She's almost being treated like a non-entity in this campaign. How many days has she gone now without having a press conference? 260. Yes, who's counting? But it is extraordinary. And, you know, to a certain extent, this, this again, is, is a tribute to what Donald Trump has done in changing the media landscape. But, but I, I would say, I mean, she's not obviously completely unvetted, but the imbalance between the coverage is, is pretty dramatic. But I would say that what's funny about looking at the two of them is that whenever Hillary Clinton is covered, her campaign most of the time, sees it as a bad thing for her. And whenever Trump is covered, even if they don't like the coverage, only positive. they turn it around. I mean, Trump said something after the Republican convention, which was, well, if all publicity is good publicity, it was after Melania had lifted some of Michelle Obama's speech. And he said, but that was one of the most watched speeches or that was the most covered event. And if all publicity is good publicity, then we're we're doing great. And And so there's something about his reaction to that, that somehow manages to turn even negative headlines into something sort of positive for him, whereas on the Clinton campaign, they are much more controlling. They certainly don't say, well, let's let Hillary be Hillary. I mean, that's the opposite approach. And I think that what's puzzling to, to watch is how the same, even if she was given much more attention, it wouldn't be a net positive for her. I think that's true. And I'm sure that she's very, very much enjoying it. But what is interesting, and again, going back to this challenge that Donald Trump and his supporters pose to journalistic ethics, I'm looking right now, even as we're speaking, the, the, the number one most read story on Politico is Rudy Giuliani, 
uh, attacking the media for ignoring this bogus story about Clinton, Hillary Clinton's bad health. They are taking this story, which sort of festered in the fever swamps of the conspiracy-oriented right, and they're bringing it into the mainstream and then challenging and hammering the media, why aren't you talking about this? So they are making the story. They're pushing the story. They're driving the story. And simply because they're talking about it, I'm guessing that it will raise a lot of doubts in, in the public's mind. Every morning, I get a dozen emails from various sites talking about you know, what the media is not telling you about Hillary Clinton's health, etc. Et so we are, we are really in an extraordinary moment in, in um, the driving of narratives and the way in which a completely, as far as I can tell, completely unfounded story becomes at the center of a political campaign. Well, Charlie, how does all of that affect the way you actually do your job? I mean, it seems like you may not be enjoying showing up in the office as much as maybe you would have several years ago, but in the actual mechanics of your show, what's changed now that you're dealing with this? Well, it frankly is not fun, and I've, I've made no secret of that. I mean, I, I like to be, you know, feel that, that the audience and I are at least on, on the same page, but that, that's clearly not the case right now. I try to talk about both of the candidates. I try to, you know, talk about what's, what's in the news involving Hillary Clinton. But right now, among a lot of the conservative media consumers, they just don't want to hear anything negative about Donald Trump. And, and so that's what will happen is that I could devote two hours to Hillary Clinton, but if I devoted 15 minutes to Donald Trump's latest flip-flop, his lie, his latest slur, I would be inundated with reaction. Why are you bashing Donald Trump? Your job, and this is interesting, how so much of the conservative media audience seems to believe that the conservative media has now an absolute obligation to prop up Donald Trump, regardless of whether or not they think even they think that he is a, is a particularly sound candidate. So they, they are disappointed that we don't live down to the stereotype that many of our critics had used over the years about us. I want to ask both of you if the mainstream media, and I very much count the New York Times as a member of that category, are we doing a good job of, of kind of keeping this campaign factual, of kind of fighting this phenomenon that you've both talked about, which is kind of delegitimization of, of kind of truth and truth tellers, or are we a part of the flawed system that we're sitting here diagnosing? I mean, I think it's definitely part of the flawed system. Not that there isn't real reporting going on, but the attention that is being paid to the smaller entertaining parts of the campaign versus real substantive coverage. And I think that's what you were alluding to with Hillary Clinton, which is that she isn't as entertaining, but there are real questions that one could ask about her. But there's not a huge margin for media organizations to do that if they're thinking about their own audiences and their own bottom lines. I don't want to discount the good coverage that has been done because I think there's a lot of it. I don't think it gets as much attention. And so, therefore, the stuff that ends up being pushed on social media by mainstream media organizations themselves is the stuff that will get more clicks, get more attention. I mean, you're making the argument that media stardom in 2016 rests upon coverage of Trump. Yeah, I think that that's, that's largely true. In fact, I mean, I've, I, I'm not a political reporter, but I have gotten more attention for writing about Donald Trump than a lot of other things that I've written about. And you can see how people who do cover politics would find that pretty alluring. Would find that pretty alluring and would be rewarded 
within their own organizations for doing that. I mean, Les Moonves, who's the CEO of CBS, said not long ago, Trump might be bad for the country, but he's good for CBS. And by that, he meant that he was really good for ratings. I think that's true probably for any media outlet. I will say this, that that I think that uh, a lot of the media outlets, and I'm going to get myself in trouble with my tribe for saying this, but some of the fact-checking and some of the investigative journalism by the New York Times and the Washington Post has been absolutely outstanding. I mean, you know, stepping up to this. And again, this goes back to my frustration, you know, when I try to share this, what the, the, the blowback we get. But I, I, I will say that, that, that I hope when this is all over, you know, that the, that the folks in the mainstream media will ask them, themselves as well some tough questions about narrative journalism, agenda journalism, double standards, the gap between, and I really hate to use this term, but the media elites and say flyover country, the, the different perspectives on, on every issue from, you know, whether it is it, it, it's policing or whether it's it, issues like trade, you know, to ask yourself whether or not there are legitimate objections, legitimate critiques of whether or not the coverage is, is in fact reasonably fair. Because if we're ever going to reestablish some sort of benchmarks of credibility, there's going to have to be, again, some reckoning again for the right-wing media, but also, I think, for, for the mainstream media. I want to end our conversation by asking you both where this all ends itself in this question of truth and whether we can ever reclaim it in our political process and in our media coverage of that process. Are we going to further splinter into these smaller delegitimizing parts? Or do you think that this campaign, and this may be a pipe dream, will actually create a national craving for some sort of authoritative arbiter of fact and truth? I wish I could be optimistic about this. I wish I could, you know, blow sunshine into the conversation. But I think this projection of the possibility of a Trump network is an indication of perhaps where we're going, that we are sort of in a postmodern era. And, you know, we're dealing with postmodern politics where everyone gets to define their own truth. And I just don't know how you put that back into, uh, into, into the bottle. I mean, you and I may have a conversation where we'll talk about, you know, that we need to have some, some standards of authority. But, but I think that what we've seen is, is how far down the road we've gone in this campaign. And we'll probably go farther. I think that the notion that there would be a desire for a greater authority or an arbiter after one of the most potent themes of this campaign has been anti-elitism and anti-establishmentarianism. I, I agree that that what we are looking at is a much more raucous discussion. You know, whatever happens in the election, there will still be good reporting, but I don't think anyone is going to come out of this agreeing that you know what, we all really need to listen to X or Y and, and find that one source. So no sunshine here either. <laughs> all right. Well, Brave New World, thanks to you both for joining us. This has been a, a, a really enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you. We'll end as we often do here with a number from the upshot. Nate, give us something to hold on to here. Because in our post-factual world, all we have left to believe in is the number. It's a very small thing to hang on to. It's point zero 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 one three. That is infinitesimally small. What is it? That is the share of votes between 2002 and 2005 that ended in a conviction for voter fraud in a Department of Justice study. But Nate, you and I both know that Republicans around the country are obsessed 
with voter fraud, and they've passed laws around the country and judges have rejected those. So what does this tell us about how panicked we ought to be that there's voter fraud going on? Well, there are a lot of things that are imperfect about our election system, but there's virtually no evidence that indicates that voter impersonation of the type that can be prevented with voter ID laws is a serious issue in the country. Nate, I choose to believe this number. I believe the number. Good. Thank you. That's it for The Run-Up. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you on Friday. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com slash NYT. That's netsuite.com slash NYT.